Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we're talking about the political crisis in Georgia. And this is a continuation from our conversation from last week. And here to help us understand what's going on, um, we have a member of Georgia Dream. The ruling party, Georgia Dream, won parliamentary elections in October, but much of the country's opposition argued that the elections were rife with violations and have refused to take their seats. Georgia Dream and the opposition have tried and failed for months to reach a resolution. The European Union has been in Tbilisi trying to broker a deal, but those talks ultimately fell through. Now, we have Georgi Khrashvili, who is a majority Georgia Dream MP, who is serving as first deputy chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Previously, he directed the Research Center of the Parliament of Georgia. He served as an advisor to the chairman of Georgian Parliament and also worked for Georgian Foreign Ministry, first as a policy analyst, then as a deputy director of the political department, and finally as deputy chief of mission at the Georgian Embassy in Washington, D.C., Mr. Khrashvili taught international relations at Tbilisi State University for over 20 years. He graduated from Tbilisi State University and then obtained a master uh, philosophy degree and later defended his doctoral thesis at the University of Oxford. So, Yorgi, welcome to the show. Oh, well, good morning, uh, Tario, as is uh, Georgian pronunciation of your name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm very glad to be on your show. Um, well, things are on and off. Uh, Georgia has never been a dull place in the last uh, yeah. <laughs> 50 years, you know, even more, since we first uh, felt we were free and independent and we could speak freely uh, uh, since the Soviet Union fell. Then we never stopped quarreling and arguing and trying to find our ways. And because um, democracy finally um, is a superior system to any other known system, then despite this turbulence that we have experienced for the last three decades, we are the front runners in terms of democracy and the rule of law in the region. And we are not doing terribly badly economically either. Um, Georgia is uh, one of the associated uh, members of the European Union at the, mo at the moment. We are uh, destined to be members of NATO because NATO uh, declared uh, some 13 years ago that Georgia would become member of the alliance. And uh, Georgia is normally ranked as one of the freest societies regionally. Um, so all this taken, uh, it is not sort of a the record uh, of a single political force. It is, I would uh, say that this is uh, uh, the, the merit for all this goes to the entire society. Um, nonetheless, because of this uh, turbulence, because of this uh, constant arguing, constant uh, uh, political uh, debates, which is not very nice always. I mean, uh, you, you, had, you have had some feeling of uh, polarization in the last uh, couple or so years. Uh, you know how it feels on, on social media, on uh, TV, yeah. 
And that's exactly what's going in Georgia. I would not, I would actually compare it to uh, current American politics in 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 a sense that um, we are at each other's throats virtually most of the time. Uh, but uh, state institutions remain stable. Economy, despite COVID crisis, is managed more or less uh, bearably, if I may say so. Uh, despite the fact that we are a relatively poor country, and uh, the the region is plunged into the crisis, uh, but we are still coping. And uh, also our foreign relations remain strong. Uh, we are on track uh, to, as I said, uh, uh, on uh, becoming members of NATO. And also our relations with the European Union are going well. We are fulfilling the obligations we took before the uh, European Union so that um, Hopefully, in a few years' time, we can become full members of the European Union, as you know personally, and others would be also interested to know. I hope that we we plan as a political force, as a as an incumbent political party, to formally apply to membership of the European Union in 2024. So that's our big aim. Four years' time now, already three years' time, and we hope that. Well, we know that society is supporting us in that endeavor, but we also hope that our opposition will be instrumental yeah. in taking Georgia forward. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. And particularly um, later on in the show, I want to talk to you about um, what, you, what, what Georgia Dreams visions for uh, applying for membership means, what that process is, what does it look like uh, for you. Um, I, I do want to talk about um, what's been going on recently and uh, the European Union reps were in Tbilisi uh, to try to broker a deal between your party, Georgia Dream, and the opposition, but those talks broke down. Now, I've had a number of opposition uh, uh, leaders uh, speak to me, you know, also on the show, but also for the foreign policy article that I'm writing uh, from their perspective they say one of the main issues is that georgia dream refused to agree to snap or, or early elections and the release of who they claim are uh, political prisoners who have been jailed undemocratically under your party's governance so those are just two of the major issues that people explain to me i want to get your perspective of why you believe that those talks broke down between the european union um, and, and, you know, in Tbilisi, but also your response to these allegations. Well, the, why the um, talks broke down, it's uh, relatively easy to uh, uh, um, understand in a sense that it's not very easy to uh, fulfill and to sort of um, successfully uh, complete uh, political talks, especially in our part of the, of the world. Um, so normally, I mean, happen what happens is that the, the opposition blames us and we blame the opposition for, uh, for uh, turning uh, the table, so to speak. Uh, but the good news is that the talks will continue and uh, the European representatives will be back uh, in town uh, this weekend. So the saga is not over and uh, we are going to continue talking to each other with the European mediation and hopefully we can uh, um, uh, find the agreement. Now about the allegations about uh, and the demands rather about snap elections and also the allegations about taking politicians for prisoners. 
as for the allegations, uh, as for the, the demands for the snap election, they are based on the claim of opposition that October 2020 ele elections were rigged. And what we say is these elections were free, fair, and competitive with what I call personally regular irregularities endemic to um, the societies in our region of post-Soviet countries because um, of democratic deficit, which we certainly have, even though we are working on it and progressing. Um, the, the elections are uh, not always 100% uh, uh, clean and clear. So that is exactly what happened that uh, even though these elections were uh, not a major departure towards worse from previous and then previous elections, uh, but the, the opposition tried to inflate these irregularities and claim that they were um, um, irreparably rigged and uh, then uh, they failed to produce any convincing argument for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the only initial um, uh, evidence that was brought forward, and uh, we were actually very upset of that evidence, was a claim by a local non-governmental organization, civil society organization, mm -hmm. SED, which is also known as Fair Election Society. Uh, and they were, uh, usually they have been conducting um, uh, parallel vote tabulation since 2003. And usually they are, um, uh, normally, if elections were relatively free and fair, their uh, parallel vote would coincide with the Central Election Commission vote. Mm -hmm. This time, there was, their numbers were off a few percent, right, about four or five percent of the official numbers. And then it was uh, claimed by them and then the opposition that that was a major argument which validated their claim about rigging the elections by the incumbent party. However, only um, in about five or six weeks time, the Fair Election Society came up with an apology to Georgian society saying that, well, uh, they were mistaken. They made a technical mistake, what they claimed, which is that they added, apparently, the void ballots, the overall number of uh, the calculated ballots, and therefore their percentage of the votes were a few percent off than the Central Election Commission. As soon as they subtracted the void ballots from uh, the, 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 the calcul calculation and the new calculation after correction of the mistake neatly co co uh, coincided with the Central Election Commission numbers. So despite this, now the opposition's claim is that when, well, they, they don't claim, uh, actually they continue claiming it was rigged, rigged, the elections were rigged without evidence this time. But at the same time, what they are saying now is, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether elections were rigged or not. Now we are in a political crisis. And in order to so solve the political crisis, we need snap elections. Mm -hmm. So they essentially created a, 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 a what we call an artificial crisis out of the claim of rigged elections. And then when it was revealed, the elections were uh, free and fair, as also was um, confirmed by the Senate hearing, uh, US Senate European Affairs Subcommittee hearing yesterday, convened by Senator Shaheen and Senator Ron Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also repeated that elections were competitive and free and fair according to the OSCE or their conclusions. Right. So nobody disputes that. Nonetheless, now opposition, because they cannot backtrack on their mistaken claim, they still continue arguing that snap elections 
are warranted for a very simple reason, which is that now we are in crisis. So this is sort of a self-fulfilled prophecy in a way. You create a crisis and you call snap elections. So we think as a ruling party, this is extra constitutional. This is going beyond the, what we call the legal framework and the institutional framework of the nation. And therefore calling snap elections would be very dangerous because in this case, every political force in future that loses election can claim that elections were rigged, create a crisis and then call snap elections every time. So that would actually bring us back to the 1990s when elections, turmoil, well, you leave Georgia, uh, in, in Georgia, Terrell, you know it very well, what it felt like, what it was like in, in, in the 1990s. And even when we arrived, when you arrived in Georgia in 2003, what the country looked like, right? Wild, wild west, kind of. <laughs> Precisely. And if we continue doing this extra constitutional things, then we are running a danger of repeating the same um, para-constitutional, uh, extra-constitutional arrangements in the country when the, uh, the, the, the country is run according to uh, what they used to call in a very perverse way. I mean, in the 1990s, according to the understandings rather than according to the rule of law. That's our argument. And that's first allegation about snap elections. Let me now turn to the prisoners case. Yeah. Now we have technically three people who are in jail and they claim to be politicians. Well, the first one is uh, a uh, person who claims to be a politician and he bought a share in a newly established TV company for I think 600 or 900 dollars, US dollars, roughly that's the equivalent. Mm -hmm. And he claims to be a shareholder of a media company and at the same time, a politician. But according to police and according to the court, and then the investigation, he was arrested on illegal possession of arms. Uh, I mean, for the listeners who are not familiar with uh, European countries like Georgia, mm -hmm. it is illegal to possess arms in Georgia. Uh, well, you can register them, but in this case, he was arrested on illegal possession of firearms. Mm -hmm. And this is illegal because if you use those firearms, then you are not accountable for your actions. So that's a major felony in Georgia. So this person is in jail for that. But because he was shareholder of a TV company, again, which was artificially manufactured, uh, in a sense, he was made a politician out of this so that then the political prisoner term could be applied to him. The second one is Melia, uh, uh, Nikanor Melia, who is now uh, uh, the biggest uh, stumbling block in this uh, debate. Nikanor Melia uh, was a, a minor figure in the opposition, major opposition party, United National Movement. He's a chair though, he's a chair. That, that's precisely where I'm getting at. Okay. He was under investigation for inciting violence and calls to violently enter the parliament in June, 2019. There is a recording. He never himself denied that he was calling on people to violently overtake the parliament which is actually very similar to what happened in, uh, in, in the Capitol on the 6th of January. Even visual uh, uh, recordings are very similar. So this person then was um, under investigation and he agreed to pay bail 
to be out, right? And run his political business as a minor figure in his own party. He was also required to um, uh, carry the bracelet. Yeah, the ankle is the ankle bracelet. And so he reportedly he took it off. He agreed that he was under investigation. He paid the bail. He was carrying this bracelet. But after the election, he said, after those supposedly rigged elections, right, which later turned out that we were not rigged at all, he decided that he was not a politician anymore. He was a revolutionary. So he publicly took off his bracelet and threw it in the crowd and said, I'm throwing that into crowd. The state will not be able to arrest me. Acknowledging that was that he knew it was a, a, a crime that we saw. He was committing on the, uh, at the spot. All right. And then, because there was this turmoil, you know, after the elections, there were demonstrations and so on, the prosecutor's office apparently decided to wait with his arrest. Uh, and meanwhile, he was uh, elected to the parliament and he was already protected by the parliamentary immunity, even though, though he did not recognize the elections through which he became member of parliament. So then what happened next is that he was made chair of the, of the opposition party. And he had already been under investigation. And that was kind of alibi, an artificial alibi, so that he was called the leader of the opposition, so that his ongoing investigation looked already political, a political persecution. So what happened in the end of the day, at some point, the prosecutor's office, who couldn't arrest him, because they offered him bail. And his second time, I mean, the prosecutor's office wants to arrest him for what he has done, had done with his bracelet. But the prosecutor's office decided to essentially ask him to pay another bail. That was a very soft measure and not arrest him instead. Mm -hmm. And he refused to pay the bail. And then the prosecutor's office asked the parliament to waive his immunity. So they, they, they could arrest him. And that's precisely what we did. The letter from the prosecutor's office was watertight. It had all the legal requirements. Okay. And because it was within the constitution, within the law, and fell within the rule of law uh, provisions, we waived his immunity. In a few days, he was arrested by the police. Now he's in jail and proclaimed as a political prisoner. And now let me give you the third case which okay, just okay. happened only a few days ago. It was an opposition, another opposition member, uh, Bogi Tulaya, okay, yeah. who apparently committed uh, a violent act against a woman mm -hmm. in a rented apartment. Mm -hmm. The woman complained to the police and the police, based on the evidence that she presented, arrested this person on charges of, I think, I'm afraid I won't be precise, but something about attempted sexual harassment okay. and violence. So these three gentlemen are now in jail. And the opposition claims that these three people are political prisoners in Georgia. That's the story. And we deny that the elections were rigged. And therefore, to sum up, there is no legal constitutional basis for calling snap elections. And second, there are no political prisoners in Georgia. It is just that three alleged criminals who, with, with a political background. As these negotiations move forward, are you telling me that 
there is no way that you would agree to any snap or or any form of uh, an early election. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? There is no constitutional and legal basis for calling snap elections. Now, if this is and the only what what I know, the only uh, way to legally proceed towards snap elections in a parliamentary democracy and parliamentary republic, mm-hmm. which is Georgia, is to if there is a uh, governmental crisis, which means that if the parliament is unable to form the government three times then uh, the parliament will be dissolved and snap elections will be called. But there is no basis for that because we successfully managed to appoint the cabinet. Technically and constitutionally, there is no basis for that. And I do not see how you could enter, uh, one way is just to create a artificial cabinet crisis and then self-dissolve. And that's pretty much what you're, and and it's not pretty much what you're saying that the opposition is doing. That's precisely what they are trying to do. No, 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 no. This is different. The governmental crisis technically is a different thing. This is when the parliament is unable to form the government. What the opposition is telling us is artificial crisis in a sense that, well, now we are now arguing against each other publicly. There is high polarization, which is sufficient grounds for um, dismissing the parliament and calling snap elections. In that case, the entire world should be in constant elections because there is always somebody who is unhappy about the elections. So is there anything that Georgia Dream and the opposition agree on? Like, were were there any, um, (laughs) yeah, we'll just start there. Did you, you know, during all these negotiations, were there two or three things that you said, okay, we will move ahead together in this respect? Essentially, there are a few uh, things on the table that we almost agreed on. One and fundamental thing, and this is what our uh, American and European friends are suggesting, and there is ample, um, ample um, uh, basis for, for, for it to be fulfilled, and that is electoral reform. Mm-hmm. So we just change the electoral system and so on and so on. Uh, but the point about it is that for that purpose, you need constitutional majority. And for that, you have to have over 100 members of parliament. And because uh, the opposition doesn't join the parliament, then technically it's impossible to uh, fulfill all those reforms, mm-hmm. including also, I mean, what uh, what is also potentially on the table is the judicial reform, right? Or continuation of the judicial reform, which has been going in Georgia for 30 years, and God knows for how many years it will continue because it, the, the, the judicial system, as in many countries in the post-Soviet space, it probably is, and not only in Georgia, I would say in the United States, in the European countries, mm-hmm. judicial system, because the norms evolve all the time, right? right. Uh, then they require uh, uh, constant uh, adapting and adjusting. There are new norms of equality that are entering uh, uh, the stage, right? And then the human consciousness and the human society. And so there is, it is impossible to finish judicial reform and say, here, we have a perfect system. Well, that's precisely what happens. Let me just say one thing and underline it in particular. Georgia's judicial system is imperfect. However, in the last 30 years of independence, it had never been as transparent as it is today. It is not that we had a somewhat better judicial system and, and it deteriorated and therefore it needs improvement. 
No, it's just that, especially in the last eight years of uh, our uh, party being in 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 uh, power, it and and everybody acknowledges. You could listen to yesterday's uh, Senate subcommittee hearing. There was a lot of praise on Georgia's democratic development, on Georgia's movement towards the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could just listen to that. Everybody acknowledges that, including in judicial reform. Except for it was so corrupted in the Soviet system. It was so bad in the post-Soviet times. And it requires major effort in future as well. And this is what we could also potentially agree, uh, including with our uh, European and American partners. Yeah, I want to touch on something really quick. So you, you are correct, because I, I did watch that hearing yesterday on, on the crisis in Georgia. And I do want to cite a paragraph from that OSCE report and then expound upon that with you. So I'll read it. It says that the, um, uh, the statement of the preliminary findings and conclusions um, are as follows. It says that the elections were competitive and overall fundamental freedoms were respected. Nevertheless, pervasive allegations of pressure on voters. And we'll talk about what that means per my conversations with opposition and the blurring of the line between the ruling party and the state reduced public confidence in some respects of the process. The elections were conducted under a substantially revised legal framework that provided a sound basis for holding democratic elections, but further efforts to address shortcomings are needed. The technical aspects of the elections were managed efficiently despite challenges posed by COVID, but the dominance of the ruling party in the election commissions negatively affected the perception of their impartiality and independence, especially at the lower levels. The overall framework for campaign financing, including high spending limits, disadvantage, smaller and newer parties. The diverse and pluralistic media were highly polarized and there was little analytical reporting and policy-based uh, discussion detracting from the voters' ability to make fully informed choice. I want to talk about, there's, there's some, one allegation that roughly four or five representatives from these different parties told me was uh, the deployment of the Kuchas BJB. <laughs> okay, so 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 for people who don't know that, it's basically uh, street boys or kind of thugs per se. You know, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So so what they what they're telling me on record was that one these. Kuchas BJB were deployed under the direction of Georgia Dream to go to polling stations and intimidate um, voters. And I've asked them to provide the specific evidence behind that. And they, you know, um, are saying that. But also they they told me that for people who worked at the at state organizations in the different ministries that they are uh, they've been given information uh, that they were that they were being pressured um, from, you know, higher high ranking employees who work at who work at institutions um, at the state level to vote for Georgia Dream, or they would lose their job. So that's those were the some those were some of the examples that they told me. How do you respond to that? And there is a lot of uh, uh, there are a lot of things on the table. Though. The plate, yeah. so to to uh, 
now no remember and address one by one, but I'll no try problem. to get the, the entire picture first. As you see from the excerpt that you read, it was uh, mixed praise and then usual criticism. I would actually recommend to you, uh, Terrell, to read the OSC Odier conclusion about American elections. Have you read it? I have not. No, I have not read it. Well, I mean, after our conversation, you could just read it for comparison to your... Uh, uh, were you ever interested to read it? Yeah, of course. Listen, you know, it's interesting. So I, I have an idea where you're going to get... Sorry, I, I do not want to create uh, an impression of what about this, that I'm told telling you that, well, look... No problem. Go ahead. <laughs> we all have our own problems, and I'm not even comparing Georgian elections to American elections, which no. are normally much better administered than our elections. And that's understandable. You have a, what uh, centennial uh, tradition of democracy, uh, one would say. And in our case, uh, well, you with deficiencies, of course. And in our case, our democracy is only thirty years old. Again, with huge deficiencies, gotcha. but we are working on. So that that's that's the basis of just the context. Now, I wanted to address two particular things that you mentioned. The first one is which is bigger, right? The, the thugs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing to say is that just from the, the beginning uh, or two, the first is that opposition never provided any evidence of anything like that. So what you are suggesting and what they say is usually without evidence. So they could just orchestrate say, saying the same thing and that would be sort of, you cannot take it for face value, right? Okay. And the second is, I have never seen any evidence of that. The second thing is, that when they talk about this stuff, um, um, you we we can just go and uh, see uh, the subsequent chapters of uh, OSC or their final report, or even in the intermediary report. When they talk about intimidation, actually the exact quote I remember what they refer to as intimidation in that report is that they say. Then we have too many representatives of political parties inside the voting room, yeah. which created intimidating um, uh, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Then you, when you see that there were about 40 parties, over 40 parties or 50 participating in elections, and each had the right to put their own representative in the voting room, that's quite a especially in the pandemic, that whitened intimidating atmosphere. And we, then the word intimidation was automatically assigned to the government mm -hmm. and to the ruling party. While that's not exactly what the report says. The third thing that I think that I can say about the, the, the entire allegation is that 11,000 representatives of political parties signed the final protocols of in each pressing, over 11,000. For a small country such as Georgia, that's a huge number. Not a single member of an opposition uh, qu uh, quota representative of the ele pressing election uh, commission refused to sign the protocol, the final voting protocol. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there was any semblance of rigging, intimidation, vote buying, anything that they are suggesting, that at least one member out of 11,000 opposition representatives in the electoral commissions would have stepped up and said, 
I'm not signing this protocol because elections were rigged in my presence. All of them as one signed it with no pressure. And at least they are not alleging there was a pressure on their representatives, right? Mm -hmm. It's impossible after all. There are cameras everywhere and so on and so on. And the final one about uh, the uh, intimidation of civil servants. Mm -hmm. Well, civil service in Georgia is now much more robust than it ever was, especially when you were in Georgia. So mm -hmm. each civil servant is now more protective than ever before. Even inside the parliament, I know, I mean, there are about six to 900 employees, uh, depending how you uh, call the administrative stuff and civil, civil, civil stuff. I know what these people who are staffers, right? It's not political staffers, they are civil servants. Even inside the parliament, many of them have different opinions about this thing from mine. Some of them are very harshly criticizing the ruling party, but that's their private opinion. You would not name a single case when someone was dismissed for political, reason, uh, for political reasons anywhere in Georgia. If someone alleges that happened, they can go to court. And then there were, if I remember correctly, there were a couple of cases when they actually won the court against the state for unlawful dismissal. So the opposition now tries to portray Georgia as a wild west and as wilderness where the ruling party crushes everything and so on and so on. It is very far removed from the reality. Again, we are not perfect, but in terms of where we stand in the region first, and second, where we stand compared to where we stood eight years ago when actually major opposition parties were in power. This is two different stories. This is definitely two different stories. And I'm not backtracking on that claim on a yota, because now we are in much, much, much better state democracy-wise, rule of law-wise, than we were eight years ago. And now the people who actually created an autocratic state in Georgia eight years ago are now turning to us and talking in behalf of democracy and human rights. And nonetheless, we take that. We don't tell them that they, they cannot speak about this. We actually take their claims on face value and we are trying to argue with them, except what we are telling them is that the best way to argue is inside the parliament rather than with loudspeakers in the street because you cannot achieve uh, truth in the street because there is always someone who actually shouts louder. And what we need is these people coming to parliament and one last uh, sort of brush of the entire picture. In the entire history of Georgia, of independent Georgia, the opposition has never been more numerous in the parliament. They have taken 60 out of 150 seats. And there are about 14 parties, opposition parties who entered the parliament, united or uh, in nine different blocks. And that is a record number of opposition parties entering the parliament. And this is exactly due to the uh, electoral change that we enacted a year ago, and which is praised in the OSC ODIR report. That's yeah. precisely what enabled us to actually make the parliament very democratic. And instead of celebrating that with us and engaging in constructive dialogue, they are shouting in the streets because they created a zero-sum game out of this for no obvious reason. And this is what we are trying to tell uh, our international partners. Got you. So and our international partners, only in the US and in, in Europe, hear us. And they constantly tell the opposition 
to enter the parliament, to engage in the political process, to no avail. Tell us what the vision of Georgia Dream is for uh, forming closer ties to the European Union, the United States. Um, so you're going to apply for the European Union in 2024. When I arrived in Georgia in 2003, <laughs> I remember just going down some of the main streets of Tbilisi. It was a very sketchy situation and it was so bad. You, the people were being robbed left and right. It, it was a, it was a different world. And I lived in Vale and we had six hours of electricity per day. It came at 6 PM and it went away at 12 at midnight. There were a lot of issues going on, even the road going from Tbilisi to Talavi. Right. Um, I think it took a couple of hours under when Shakashuli came in. Like one of the things that we noticed was that the uh, Mikhail Shakashuli, who was the former uh, president of Georgia, uh, for those who don't know, but you immediately saw the differences in roads and everything. Um, so it was a completely different world, and you and you it was a noticeable difference. Um, now you all are um, the Georgia dream, you know, who's been in power for eight years, you're looking to apply for membership. What does that look like? You know, what does it mean to officially apply your country for a membership to the European Union? Because a lot of us don't know what that looks like. Well, you saw it by yourself what progress Georgia made in the last 18 years. And here I want also to... Uh, appreciate what the previous government has done, which is now in opposition. Yeah. Because this created some of the sound state structures, which uh, mostly was about security. I mean, uh, uh, police was reformed and uh, the, there was improvement in the defense ministry and some uh, structures of the economy were revitalized, revitalized especially construction and tourism. Mm -hmm. All right. And then Georgia's pro-Western orientation became more vocal and more dynamic. Mm -hmm. This is praise that also goes to the former ruling party, United National Movement, uh, with uh, Mikhail Saakashvili uh, as their leader. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what they failed to do is mostly on the democratic and uh, rule of law view. Yeah. The, the prisons were full of people who were very often arrested uh, arbitrarily and uh, they, 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 you know, uh, uh, they were treated very badly in the prisons, including torture. At the same time, Saakashvili failed miserably in terms of equality, mm -hmm. which is very important for the Georgian dream. So Georgian dream parties to the left of Saakashvili's right-wing economic liberal. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, what Saakashvili did was he created huge inequalities, uh, which were not existent in Georgia. Everybody was poor, and then suddenly some people remained the same poor, and some people became very rich. And at the same time, if you look at the numbers of people who lived in poverty in 2003, when you arrived in Georgia, and then in 2012, when Saakashvili left power, the numbers essentially didn't change about 1,250,000 people were living in poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, Georgian Dream managed to reduce that number 
to 750,000, mm-hmm. which is for Jordan, it's a huge improvement. Unfortunately, now some may be sliding back to poverty because of the pandemic. But because the economy is now what we call is on the sustainable footing, it's not a wild neoliberal economy anymore, but it's a sustainable economy. Therefore, we hope that in, a, in, in, in the next three, three years, we can bring these people out of poverty again and actually further reduce poverty. Mm-hmm. That's an overall picture. And in the last eight years, we allowed free speech. I mean, you remember media was quite suppressed in Saskatchewan time. All TV stations were talking about the same program, about the same stuff in the same sequence, in the same language, praising the government, despising the opposition. Now, actually, almost all TV channels are criticizing the government and in a very polarized way. So in terms of media freedom, in terms of vibrancy, vibrancy of civil society, you cannot compare these years to previous years, right? And we believe, and also most crucially, we signed the association agreement with the European Union in 2014. So we chose, chose the year 2024 as a 10th year anniversary of our signing of the association agreement. So after 10 years, we must have, we, we should, will have to make enough progress so that to qualify ourselves for formal application towards membership. And it is not just that they like us and therefore they allow us. There are zillions of regulations, conditionalities, premises. (laughs) It's like a telephone book of, of regulations, yeah. It's a huge document. And we have to follow it step by step, and we hope that we'll fulfill about 60 to 70% of those requirements so that to qualify ourselves for application, which is a separate process, right? And then we will start formal negotiations for accession and membership. So Georgia, in that sense, is a front runner among the so-called Eastern Partnership countries, the six countries that are adjacent uh, to Europe, to European Union in Eastern Europe, and we are for clear frontrunners in, in every respect, including most crucially democracy and the rule of law and human rights, but also in terms of economy, despite our poverty, because we restructured the economy without actually har- harming the population, as I said, which to me is a huge deal. You know, to achieve uh, the highest growth rate in the region, which is which was actually five percent mm-hmm. in in terms of before COVID uh, struck. And at the same time, alleviate people out of poverty at the same time. This is a huge achievement to me for any government, especially of such a country in between, as they say, Georgia. Another achievement is that we reduced the number of prisoners from previous times. And at the same time, we reduced the crime rate, both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then I could just cite... Yeah. But you know another thing I'm I, you know one thing I'm I'm especially interested in asking you is how has Georgia Dream managed the relationship between Tbilisi and Moscow because in Washington that's the number one concern about this current political crisis is that it makes it easier for Russia to interfere in some way there are also uh, people who wonder if the founder of the party um you know Mr Ivanishvili um, who made as much of his money in Russia um, has too close a uh, relationship with with, with um, the, the Kremlin. I, you know, 
So what's your response to that? Like how, how was Georgia dream managing um, that relationship with Russia? Because, you know, they obviously don't want you to uh, join NATO or go to the European union. Well, I, I would just dismiss these as uh, uh, mere invented delegations and uh, you could, again, I could cite uh, yesterday's uh, discussion in the subcommittee of the Senate, whereas uh, the uh, deputy uh, uh, assistant secretary of state, George Kent, very clearly said that Georgia made a very impressive progress towards uh, the Western institutions. And he personally cited Ivanishvili as a founder of the party and then chairman and the prime minister as one of the um, uh, sort of drivers of this uh, progress towards the West. Um, so in that sense, uh, it, it is not serious. I mean, these allegations, and uh, therefore I wouldn't uh, spend much time on that. Now, a much more geopolitically and strategically important question is how we manage relations with Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, let me say that um, each government in Georgia, except for ours, made a huge mistake in the beginning of their rule. We so far had two. Eduard Shevardnadze, who was former Soviet foreign minister and then president of Georgia in the 1990s, and then Saakashvili, who was president of Georgia in 2000. All of these leaders, at the beginning of their rule, tried to strike a deal with Russia. Now, everybody remembers Saakashvili for his anti-Russian rhetoric, but very few people remember the first couple of years of his rule when he would visit the Kremlin and actually try to talk to Putin. And uh, sometimes these relations were pretty intense. So in that sense, the mistake of both Shevardnadze and Saakashvili is that they tried to find the common language with Russia and pacify Russia. However, in both cases, they failed. And their first overtures to Russia were quickly followed by disappointment and by war. We had the war in 1993 in Abkhazia, as you know. We had uh, the war in 2008, again, uh, between Russia and Georgia. And in both cases, what happened was that we lost both wars, right? Georgian government, current Georgian government, never had any illusions about Putin's intentions in Georgia. Therefore, we never ever conceded a on a yota, on a, in, a, in the smallest bit, in our political and military relations with Russia. We continued our path to NATO and made a very huge pro progress. I actually visited yesterday JTAC, which is Joint Training and Evaluation Center between Georgia and NATO. And that is our creation, our party's creation, right? With NATO, it did not exist in previous times. And then I could cite a few other institutions. I'm just very under under very uh, big impression from yesterday's trip. That's why I just cited GTEC as an example yeah. of success. But there were numerous others. Now, uh, in that sense, despite never actually backtracking on our Western aspirations, we at the same time managed to keep Russia at bay, despite the fact that they continue uh, uh, borderization. Yeah, is erecting artificial barriers between Georgia and the occupied territories. They continue numerous other violations of human rights in the occupied territories, at the, at, at all, the, uh, all the same. There, is, there was slight improvement in relations with Russia when it came to economic and cultural exchange. 
especially in the economy, that Georgian produce started entering Russian markets again. And that was, first of all, Georgian wine, yeah, which is sold like crazy in Georgia because yeah, uh, like everybody yeah. else, everybody likes Georgian wine. Yeah. And tourism as well, that many Russian tourists started coming to Georgia, but we think it's a good thing. They see that Georgia is not a wild place as portrayed by their media in Russia, and that Georgians are a friendly nation, and that actually Georgia managed to, to thrive despite not being associated with Russia. Mm -hmm. Because that's a myth, that's a propaganda in Moscow, that if you are not allied with uh, Moscow, then all you have is wild capitalism, all you have is uh, essentially war and uh, crime and uh, 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 famine. But in fact, Georgia presents exactly the opposite picture to what Russian propaganda says. And therefore, those uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of Russian tourists who come to Georgia see with their own eyes how a country can develop without being dependent on, on the Kremlin is a good thing. So in that sense, this is a framework within which we operated with Russia. And we are not afraid to knock on the European door. We are not afraid to uh, uh, push ourselves towards membership of NATO. We are not afraid of being the best friends of the United States in the region. And we have several American military uh, programs operating in Georgia, including the program through which our military battalions are trained by American instructors. instructors. And it is going forward, this, this project. And then Americans are providing uh, us uh, huge uh, aid you know, in many ways, including for alleviating uh, COVID. One of the best institutions for dealing with COVID pandemic was a so-called Lugar Lab, which is a public health lab named after American Senator Richard Lugar. And that was sort of the central piece, jewel, of Georgia's medical resistance to COVID pandemic. Yes. So all these taken is clearly demonstrates that despite without sacrificing our Western aspirations, we managed to keep Russia at bay. Not many countries manage that. Do you see um, the possibility of formal relations resuming? Because you know, last time I I tried to check it. So there is there currently um a Russian ambassador in, in Georgia and, vi and vice versa. Oh, yeah. We broke off relations. Yeah, we broke off. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I, I figured. I... Diplomatic relations will not be restored before Russians withdraw from the occupied territories. Okay, yes. And so do you see that in the future? Because when you think about NATO, um, one of the biggest issues are these um, regions, um, that Georgian territory, Abkhazia, as well as South Ossetia. And so do you feel like that one, uh, first of all, both situations, they are both are occupied by Russian troops, but they're very different situations. Do you see the possibility of South Ossetia, you know, being returned to Georgia um, faster than Abkhazia or vice versa? How do you see that working out? That's a broad historical question. So I would just answer that. I'm sure in my lifetime, we will reunite uh, because these people are our citizens and uh, Georgians, Abkhaz and Ossetians have been brothers throughout history. We are now artificially divided by the Russians. Georgia was occupied many times before and we survived for thousands of years. 
and you have yourself seen the very rich and vibrant culture that we created in this country for uh, hundreds of generations. So we are very confident that we can outlive any empire, including Russia. That's first part. Now about NATO question. Mm -hmm. Well, Germany too was divided and only part of it was member of NATO. And nonetheless, Germany reunited when the Soviet Union fell. So there can be different configurations of Georgia's membership in NATO. But I am sure that at some point, Georgia in its entirety will be member of the European Union and will be member of NATO. Now, if you want to ask me about specifics, uh, I don't possess the skill of clairvoyance so that I, I can predict. But uh, all, all I can reflect, all, all I can say is, uh, first, I have full confidence. And second, we are prepared to work and fight very hard for that purpose. Do you think that there's some misconceptions that some people in Washington have about the Georgia dream? Uh, I see. I, I spent a few years, uh, as you read out from my bio in Washington. Uh, also, my doctoral thesis was on uh, as diplomat, right? But also my doctoral thesis was American foreign policy. Actually, it was on ideology in American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I noticed in Washington, uh, without being overly critical, is... I mean, go ahead. Be, it's perfectly fine. But obviously, because you're trying to work with them, I get it. But... It's, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> they have a, a slightly uh, a slight problem with. Uh, there are two worlds for Washington, right? One world is a known world, in a sense that the regions that they know very well. In which case, Washington is very scrupulous. Oh, well, most of the time, diligent and methodical. And then there is a, another world which they don't know much about, or it's a new addition to the diplomatic plate, so to speak. And in that case, may I suggest white and black or black and white picture prevails, right? That, so in the case of Georgia, some people think because previous president Saakashvili was entirely Russian, therefore the force that replaced him should be pro-Russian. And then that perception of necessarily evil and kind, um, or if you will, a halo effect. When you have one good thing, then everybody, everything good goes with it. Or a horn effect, when if you have one deficiency, then every, uh, all, the, all the negative things go with it. It's precisely the problem with some people in Washington. Luckily, they are not in decision-making circles, luckily. Uh, the, the people in the State Department, people in Congress, they are very knowledgeable about Georgia. And therefore, we have the partisan support in Congress and very, very scrupulous and methodical approach from the State Department. However, if you take a wider discourse, uh, then sometimes I just find uh, the conceptions of Georgia wildly of the uh, mark of reality. Like what, for example? Well, I mean, you just mentioned, right, that Georgia, the founder of Georgian Dream has close connections with Moscow because he made his money in Russia. Right. That is a conception that was cultivated by Saakashvili for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to demolish because of exactly that uh, uh, feeling, you know. You, you said something about, you know, the, the worlds that they don't know. And I feel like Georgia 
too often is seen through the lens of people who study Russia. That's right. Right. And so, you know, as somebody who's been to both countries, they're in different, you know, culturally, their whole nine yards, they're in different galaxies. You know, um, the only thing that they have in common is that, you know, Georgia was under Soviet, you know, rule, but otherwise they're just vastly different. And do you feel that this lack of knowledge about Georgia, period, confuses or misinforms people who are in decision-making authority? No, I think, as I said, they are perfectly knowledgeable about Georgia, but then uh, there okay. exists, uh, a, I would call it the culture of Russia in Washington. Okay. Now, I will tell you what, uh, what I mean. Actually, your comments are very perceptive. That Georgia is seen through Russian prism in Washington. Mm-hmm. And when I studied myself uh, uh, American foreign policy, I interviewed a lot of people in the government, in, in, in the uh, epistemological community, as we say, um, in economic circles, in you know, business circles, and so on. One thing that struck, to, uh, uh, that struck me is that precisely before, because what you said, that they see Georgia through the Russian prism, then how they see Russia, then they see Georgia according to them. So if they are anti-Russian or Russophobes or whatever you call them, right? Mm-hmm. When they see not necessarily even Putin, but Russia as a threat and as a, as a dark empire and the evil empire and so on and so on, that's fine. Then they necessarily treat Georgia, some of these people, as a David against the Goliath without actually thinking much about unboxing Georgia and seeing what is inside, how people feel about politics. Maybe there are other issues besides Russia that Georgians are passionate about, right? It can be economy, it can be culture, it can be education, it can be many other things, right? Uh, Multicultural, uh, religious questions. There are a lot of things that change Georgians, right? And then just to see Georgians only through the prism of anti-Russian sentiments is not necessarily correct. And second, if you are someone who studied Russia academically or in any other way, and then you became what they call in Germany, Russia Verstehen, or person who understands Russia and therefore sympathizes with Russia, then you don't like Georgia because Georgians and Russians don't get along very well. So you have two antagonistic camps there in Washington, right? And but they have in common one thing that they see Georgia through Russia, and when you try to present Georgia as a separate entity that has its own interests, its own culture, which you said is very different from Russian culture, it's situated actually in a different geopolitical region in a sense that it can be as much as Middle East as or Soviet space or Eastern Europe. And we want to, to position ourselves as a European nation, right? Good. So, so... Thank you for spending so much time with us to give Georgia Dreams perspective of what's happening. I've heard a lot from the opposition. And to be fair, uh, I wanted to have you on the show and to give your perspective so everyone understands, you know, every side to this. And regardless of what's going on there, I I do hope that uh, for a country I genuinely love, right? And a country that I've lived in and I study the language and I have many Georgian friends and I'm I'm always there. Uh, I do hope that 
going into this next round of negotiations uh, that you are able to broker a deal with the opposition that would be beneficial for the country. Thank you for your uh, affection to my country and also to your listeners for, for their patience and interest. I want to finish uh, with, uh, with a hopeful note that um, we will get through this, I'm sure. We have been through more difficult times. This is not anything extraordinary. It requires patience, it just requires some humanity uh, and uh, some help from the friends like you, uh, yourself. And uh, I'm sure we'll do this. So thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. And we did a show. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please support us by going to Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Also, we love giving you great interviews each week, but running and growing a podcast isn't cheap. So please go to Patreon, find us under Black Diplomats, and support us with whatever you can. Thank you again for joining us and talk to you next week. Thank you.